0: Hello Yuma, I'm Quentin Grafton, Professor of Economics at the Australian National University and the convener of the Water Justice Hub, a platform for truth-telling and justice for all in relation to water. In this spirit of justice and reconciliation, we also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia on which this podcast has been produced and honour their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torrey Strait Islander people today. The Water Justice Hub is a place for everyone, especially First Peoples, to promote their voice and respond to the global challenges of delivering sustainable development and water for all. This podcast is an initiative to represent water warriors and their stories from around the world, sharing ideas and narratives to assist in education, advocacy and water policy. Along this series, you will hear from a variety of voices promoting fluid conceptions of water justice as critical to the survival of individuals and also to our collective survival. Please listen with intent. Subscribe and share this podcast to assist in the fight for independent voices, equitable decision-making, and ultimately, water justice for all. To continue our discovery of water justice concepts, we turn to Latin America, which is home to diverse peoples and water inequalities. While many countries across Latin America struggle to provide centralized water to their entire populations, pollution, corruption, and even climate change in some locations have all made water scarcity an everyday reality. Even with rich natural water resources such as found in Brazil, not everyone has access to clean, sustainable, and affordable water. Despite activists and researchers warning of water crises that are already underway in Latin America, these voices struggle to break through to political powers and people in authority throughout that continent and beyond. Kat and Tim have engaged with a few water experts to discuss issues facing different nations in Latin America, their political and socioeconomic contexts, and the most important thing of all, the solutions needed to bring water justice to everyone. Over to you, Kat and Tim, and thank you for your time.
1: Thanks, Quintin. Tim and I have explored several aspects of water justice in Latin America. We've been finding out more from our guests about their fascinating and important research. We started by looking into cases of corruption and mismanagement of water resources and infrastructure in Mexico.
2: One element of infrastructure is the purpose it is meant to serve, but it often has its doubles in terms of a method of siphoning off public resources for the private sector.
1: Professor Cindy McCullough is a researcher at the Center for Research and Higher Studies in Social Anthropology in Guadalajara, Mexico. Cindy's work on the dynamics between various levels of government and citizens has been published in books and journals, and her commentary is extremely valuable. Water infrastructure in Mexico fails to meet the needs of all of its citizens across varying socio-economic levels. Regulation of the use of water and regulation preventing the pollution of water resources has eroded over time. And so, as environmental stresses from climate change and urban expansion increase, the water stresses in Mexico are just beginning. With Cindy's help, we were able to make some sense of the issues and gain some clarity on what can be done about them.
3: Thank you for joining us, Cindy. We appreciate you making the time to discuss crucial challenges for water justice in a unique part of the world. I'd like to start, if you could provide us, Cindy, with a brief explanation of water scarcity in Mexico.
2: Sure, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Well, I mean, obviously, Mexico is very large and, and diverse country. so it's generally described and from the National Water Commission, you get a sort of general Diagnosis of the country divided in the two-thirds, the north and central part of the country versus the south-southeast, where you have much higher precipitation. So we get in sort of broad strokes, the south-southeast, you have over 70% of the water and about a third of the population and less than a third of GDP generated. And in the... North-central, you have the majority of the population, you know, a third of the water supply and the majority of GDP generation. So this is described as kind of a mismatch from government. I think this is a case of trying to naturalize a discourse around water scarcity, of course, but definitely there are serious issues of over-exploitation of water, A lot of it to do with agriculture and export agriculture. Agriculture consumes more than 70% of water resources in the country. And definitely there are important processes of over-exploitation of water that can be seen in dropping aquifer levels and increased presence of geocontaminants such as arsenic and and fluoride, which is affecting uh, water supply for important populations in different regions of the country. So it's a complex problem, but one thing you can say with certainty is that the system of water concessions is not being utilized in any effective way to control these processes of over-exploitation. And uh, there's very little oversight of how water is extracted. And there are are certain perverse incentives that have been signaled, attention has been called to them for many, many years, especially around not charging the electricity rates for agricultural water extraction. There's a special tariff with the Federal Water Commission here, which subsidizes agricultural water extraction without differentiating between small-scale producers who maybe could or need such a subsidy to support their the production versus large export-oriented agro-industrial companies. So we have some of these perverse incentives which are driving groundwater over-exploitation and a lot of inefficient irrigation in the large irrigation districts. And that may or may not have to do with any issue of of scarcity, but also endemic problems with municipal water services in the country. And then, of course, we would have to turn to the issue of quality, which is another major issue for both general human health and the human right to water when we're talking about water supply. You have in the country over 80% of households that use jugged water right bottled water large jugs is the 20 liter jugs is the main source Mm. of uh, usually water for drinking and for cooking in many cases you know based on surveys that have been done and in part of course there is the issue of how much of this is the perception of poor quality versus the reality and there are not excellent data in that regard but mexico is only between 42 and 45 percent of the population receives that good quality of water supply, meaning that it's free from contaminants. And everywhere in the globe we're seeing impacts from climate change.
1: How is climate change a factor in water scarcity in Mexico?
2: Well I think all of the Studies that, that have been done definitely predict overall that there will be a decrease in precipitation. The data I've seen refers to maybe an overall decrease of about 15% in precipitation. And certainly a lot of these systems, as here in the Guadalajara uh, metropolitan area, don't have any sort of built-in resiliency or, or way to deal with these changing environmental conditions.
3: To some extent, does that provide an excuse for water water mismanagement? You know, can we say that, oh, well, this is the natural state of water scarcity, so therefore, you know, it's, it's not our fault from a policy standpoint that we're running out of water?
2: Yes, I think that is definitely one lesson that can be gleaned from this recent experience is that couching the problem in terms of of climate change could become a convenient excuse. And also uh, what a lot of observers have said here locally is that, you know, you had to plan ahead for this. This wasn't a surprise. You're obviously monitoring (laughs) reservoir levels and you have to take action beforehand, not when, you know, people in large swaths of the city are now depending on, on tanker trucks, uh, to deliver water to their homes because the major service provider in the state now no longer has the ability uh, to provide water even in the most consolidated areas of the city.
3: We get some news even in, in the West about more or less corrupt or co-opted political forces that benefit things like beer production when it's not necessarily in the favor of Mexican citizens? What kind of political forces have been co-opted into dealing with these issues poorly?
2: You know, we need more systemic, more structural explanations because it's not just a question of dedicating resources. It is in part, but it's also even how the regulatory frameworks are formulated themselves. So oftentimes I hear people say, well, we have all of these laws and regulations. If they were simply complied with, that would be enough. And in fact, that's often not the case. So I like to think of things in terms of institutionalized corruption, because you have to think what kind of regulatory frameworks do we have? And then how are they applied as well? Another part has to do with regulatory capture because you have the lack standards but then, who sets the standards? So, the interesting thing is within the Ministry of Environment, you have a committee that votes on modifying any existing environmental standards or proving any new standards. And within that committee of about 45 members, half of them are industry associations representing, you know, from the paper industry, chemical industry, automotive industry, et cetera, et cetera. And they have the power within this body to to veto or to block any environmental standards that affect their interests. So anyhow, those are two, at least two of the important elements of what I like to consider institutionalized corruption. The others have to do with the extremely low level inspections from having about 200 inspectors at the National Water Commission they've gone down to about 80. Now I know they're trying to increase that number, but the level of oversight, which was extremely low, is is continuing up and this is a, a major issue that I'm not sure how it's going to be addressed. Also with generating data that helps us in the case that you mentioned of perhaps beverage companies or mining companies generating data and studies to support Particular projects in the private sector?
1: Mm -hmm. When we talk about regulatory capture, I think one of the problems is it's quite insidious in nature. And when you do have these panels, industry will argue they need to be there to contribute to decision making from their position of expertise. But at the same time, it creates a conflict of interest. So I think that it's a difficult problem to to deal with. (laughs) Cindy, what policy changes would be needed to address this institutionalized corruption?
2: Well, I like to think of things in terms of participation in social movements, particularly, because I I think that even if certain changes were made, certainly I think that there need to be changes in in regulations around pollution. Certainly, I've worked with a number of other researchers and, and organizations around promoting the idea that, you need to have pollution prevention focus and there need to be regulations based on industrial sector. But even if such a change were to come about, you need to have a greater oversight and transparency from citizens <laughs> because the, there needs to be a change in, in logic kind of from the ground up. And personally, I, I do work with local organizations here and other organizations at the national level that are working on creating community committees to oversee local water policy and actions of the national water uh, commission locally and those type of citizen oversight bodies i think are a very positive step in the right direction because you know i'm looking at one level uh, of corruption and there are many many levels that i'm not mentioning which have to do with even smaller projects. I have also studied wastewater treatment plants. And here you get a lot of wastewater treatment plants that are are being built and then they're not operated. And there's a very high level of projects being abandoned. And this has to do with what are the incentives driving the construction of these projects. And and often it's in benefit of, of the construction companies and of the construction industry. And there are often links which are hard to document with solid evidence, but they do definitely exist between bureaucrats within the water commissions at the state level or the National Water Commission and the construction industry. So you get incentives to invest in infrastructure, even if it is not being operated and and maintained to provide the benefits that, of course, that infrastructure is meant to provide. So there are different levels at which citizen oversight is extremely important because this is a very complex issue. It's also a technical issue, which sort of these general discussions, for example, the, the situation I've mentioned here in Guadalajara, How can the general public read between the lines if they're being told this is an issue of climate change or this is an issue of drought? The general public doesn't necessarily have all of the information in order to judge these statements that are being made by the government. So I think in general, this needs to be a topic where you have a lot of education and participation and citizen oversight based on the movements, which here, fortunately have become, I would say, stronger and more active, especially in cases where human health is being affected by high levels of environmental pollution.
3: Yeah, I hope that part of this podcast is that it can help bring some of these issues into the public discourse. But thank you for enlightening us to some of these problems. We really appreciate your time, Professor Cindy McCullough. But pollution isn't exclusive to Mexico. With significant portions of the world's water supply in Brazil, it is perplexing to see that they struggle to supply clean water to their entire population. While clear problems for water policy are recognized, the approach taken to deal with these issues can be inappropriate.
4: Water management here in Brazil, it is totally focused on supply management. So as water demand grows, New water sources are being explored to supply this growing demand, and very little is being done to control demand.
3: Professor Daniel Santana of the University of Brasilia is a leader of the Water and the Built Environment Research Group and a well-known commentator on Brazil's water policies. Through his work, Daniel has come across administrative and societal barriers to his proposed solutions. There are efforts to increase the water supply to meet growing demands for residential, agricultural and industry use of water, but this hasn't prevented insufficient supply. To solve these problems lies an interesting tension of responsibility. Who is responsible for managing water demand? Government, end users, or the suppliers themselves? While water stresses in Brazil can be avoided with varied methods of demand and supply management, Daniel has discovered interesting perspectives on water demand. Thank you for your time, Daniel. We appreciate your expertise in discovering some important issues for Brazil. If you could please start us off by providing us with a brief explanation of some of the complications in water supply in Brazil.
4: Hi, Tim. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. It's an honor being here. Brazil recently has faced a water crisis. For example, in the state of São Paulo, for the first time in Brazilian history, we faced the challenge of supplying drinking water to different cities in, in, in the region, in the state of Sao Paulo. This problem, actually, it, it was a breakthrough, the, the first city to have this type of collapse in drinking water supply. But it wasn't anything new. Researchers, people who, who, who actually run the numbers through the scenarios, we were already trying to uh, avoid this type of water scarcity. We knew what was happening. But what was happening, most water companies, they they weren't actually providing the information for society to quite understand what was going on. So basically, we were already running on a limited water supply for a growing water demand. And there wasn't enough rain to supply our reservoirs, the city's reservoirs. So it was a a matter of time until the supply system collapsed. Mainly, I think there's two main reasons for this. First reason is the growing water demand. It is uncontrolled. So we need to start managing urban water demand and the industry water demand, irrigation, agricultural water demand. And the second point was that we're starting to face climate change. So what we're starting to observe is that the rainy seasons, they're starting to be intense. And the dry seasons are becoming intense as well. We're not having enough water to supply the growing demand. And we started using a reservoir. It, it has a lower bed level of water, which is not that good. The quality isn't that good. We call in Portuguese volume morto, which is a volume of the reservoir that shouldn't be used. It's like a dead volume of water, okay? Why? Because it's a lower level of water that is which you have a a high quantity of impurities Mm. because of sedimentation. And this this is not supposed to be used. And so what happened was in, in São Paulo, here in the federal district, we had to invest in alternative technologies That were capable of extracting water from this dead volume. I remember when I was brushing my teeth and the the water tasted like mud because the city was using this dead volume of water. And that's when, at least here at the University of Brasilia, we have a research group called Water and the Built Environment. And we started working on the first legislation on water reuse. But I feel that this water scarcity, this water stress, it isn't over. We see almost no incentive, no investments from the government on trying to control the demand for water.
3: Interesting. It sounds like you're in a position where you've done the research and you understand feasible solutions to some of the problems, but the challenge for you is not only getting it into the right policy hands but it is also convincing them not necessarily whether they can afford to do it but whether they can afford not to what are the consequences for not what what
4: what we're fighting for is trying to find mechanisms to stimulate water conservation Mm. to preserve water resources to manage rainwater urban drainage I'm not saying that we shouldn't invest in water supply. Yes, we should. But before large investments are made in building new water supply systems at the macro level, I think we should also invest so that people can start investing on water-saving technologies, changing their taps, their faucets, changing their, their toilets for dual flush toilets, making use of rainwater to wash their yeah. cars wash or even to for toilet flushing or make reuse of gray water in brazil at the federal level we have policies that allows people to use rainwater or reuse gray water but we don't see that much as happening so we're trying to find mechanisms for a water conservation program and analyzing the benefits the costs and the benefits. When I say the benefits, not just the financial benefits, but also the environmental benefits of water conservation. But it's always that thing, where's the money going to come from? So what we did on the city level here in Brazil, we, we, we did a study that focused on rainwater harvesting and greywater reuse, which was a research project with the local water agency. And it was a study that analyzed the feasibility of I'm going to say water reuse systems. I know that rainwater is not a reuse system, but it's just it's easier to say that. So we're, we're trying to figure out at the building level, the household level, how much would it cost for the people, for the society to invest on such technology, and what would be the the financial benefits for this family, families from low income to high income households, which their investments are, levels are, are different. So a high income family could invest on a larger system, while uh, low income families, what are the the solutions for them? And so we analyzed that at at the building scale and at the city scale, where we evaluated the volume of water that would be reduced from uh, urban water demand. We analyzed the best case scenario. Let's suppose 100% of the building stock used rainwater. What would that mean for our reservoirs? It wouldn't be that base case scenario for the water company. So how would that affect their economy? The water company here in Brasilia, if they identify that a dwelling might be presenting leaks, they on the water bill, that they come with a, a warning. Look, you might have leakage in your hole. Awesome. So it's a way for, for the family to take action. Uh, it's not that common, but sometimes they give this alert. Why couldn't they? As soon as they identify such a problem, they could go to households and say, look, you have a water leakage. We're going to fix your water leakage. And then you might ask me, why would they do that? Even yes. the water company, why yeah. would I do that? Yeah, I what is their incentive? Water. Yeah. Exactly. They need to sell drinking water. That's another discussion. But what we did is we found out that it is possible to promote an enormous water saving. And we even did a simulation where we found out that if 30, 40, 50% of the building stock in Brasilia was using rainwater, we wouldn't have this crisis at all because demand for water, drinking water supply would be low. So it was a proposal we gave as a result of this research but it didn't quite catch on. But it's interesting to feel that high-income families, mid-high-income families, they are capable and they are willing to make investments on new cars, on nice cars, expensive cars. But they are not willing to make great investments on water technologies.
3: It sounds like there needs to be like a little bit of a shift. People who can afford it don't necessarily want to invest in water conservation technologies, because that responsibility has fallen on them, it must mean that the government is also not willing to invest in water conservation technologies that they could just distribute. There's sort of this stalemate. Neither party really wants to take on that responsibility. Can I ask, I've seen reports in in my research that Brazil is home to a pretty significant supply of the world's water, yet still enters crisis. Uh, Is this correct? Yes, it is. <laughs> is a, it is. Is that a that a geographic well, thing? Is it just that the water yes, is not exactly. near the towns that or the, the cities? Well, what where people
4: what live. happens is the the Portuguese colonization, which happened here in Brazil, they have a quite interesting method where they the the, the cities they were established near water rich areas. Yes, it was rich Wow. At okay. the time because it was re- usually near a river on a low point of the water basin. But the thing is, cities grew. And as they grew, well, uh, the idea initially was, okay, I'll extract drinking water upstream. I'll provide water to my city. And then I'm going to collect the wastewater and I'll throw it downstream from the city. Okay, So uh, a lot of pollution going on and the cities grew. Uh, and the infrastructure, they, they, they kind of expanded and didn't change much. Until, I think, 80s, early 90s. And the rivers, not all the rivers, this situation has changed. When we're mm-hmm. still working on it. But historically speaking, rivers in Brazil, they were always used as a sewage disposal or as a trash can. People would literally throw used furniture and stuff like that in, in the river. So the, the, the river would take it off. so a lot of pollution going on so the cities grew to a point especially during the 70s where you had a city upstream throwing waste water to the river and the city downstream was using that water to supply drinking water to, to its home city and the water was too polluted so things started changing and obviously investments were made on sanitation on this this aspect on t- treating wastewater we, we still have a lot to grow so I mean the main cities nowadays in Brazil most of them treat their sewage our main problem is on small communities that's not happening yet another f- problem we're facing is that the cities have grown so much that now when it rains we're having floods and city floods and that that's it's costly. It's, it's not good. <laughs> and so as the demand for urban water grows, new water resources, natural resources are being explored. Obviously, it will come to a point where we won't have any more resources. So, yes, we are abundant in water resources. It's just that demand is uncontrolled and we have pollution that needs to be dealt with. It's not that nothing is being done. It's just that what is being done, it isn't quite as effective as it should be. For example, we have laws that obliged flats to install water meters individually because most of the residential buildings in Brazil, they only have one water meter for, I don't know, 72 families. And the price of water is divided between the number of flats. So there was a law that was published. It's a local law that obliged the building stock to adapt itself within a five-year period. And so people weren't very keen because you have to refurbish all the plumbing system in order to do so. It's very expensive,
1: yeah.
4: And it is expensive. And people weren't very happy with this law. And so even the, the politics, they, they, they say, okay, so I'm, I made a law that people aren't very satisfied with me. So it, the law exists, but people didn't come up come out with it. it. It's not being done. And people so, aren't being fined. So it, it, it's a law that's written. It's there. It exists. And people haven't done that. And so that's it. In the law, they, they say that people that does not do this, this adaptation will be fined. They're not being fined. The thing is, the federal district has come to a point where we have no more water resources, natural water resources. We're using all of it. We're using all of our natural water resources to supply the population. The thing is, Brasilia, it was supposed to be a city for 500,000 inhabitants. Today, we're facing 4 million inhabitants. It's a huge difference. So obviously, when they were going to build the city, said, well, there's it's rich in natural water resources. You know, it, it's a nice place to live. But now it, it, the fact that it's the capital city of Brazil, it has grown to an extension, to a proportion where our natural water resources, we're at the limit. And probably Brasilia will have its population still growing. The cities will still grow. So now water is, will have to be extra, extracted from another natural, of a distant source of water. But I ask you, what has the government done to try to manage water demand, very little, very little. That's what I feel, That that's what I have studied and that's what I see.
1: Daniel, thank you so much for telling us about water in, in Brazil and, and these demand management issues. We really appreciate your time talking with us today.
4: Thank you very much, Kat. Thank yeah. you, Tim,
3: for everything. Even if we establish that responsibilities of water are shared amongst us all, it is difficult to see how to assist in real policy change. With the need to create space for dialogue, it is important to ensure that we are all informed enough to participate in changing our water systems.
5: I'm usually like surprised but how many good technical developments do not see the light. They could be very good solutions but it's very difficult sometimes to, to take them actually to the people who need them.
3: Gabriela Sacco is a lecturer, activist, and executive director of the Institute for Global Dialogue and the Culture of the Encounter, where she organizes and participates in interdisciplinary work on the human right to water and sanitation. Gabriella has contributed to important research and has been incredibly active in her fight for the rights to water in her home of Argentina and across the world. Argentina is home to water stresses that are similar to that of many other countries, but it is also home to some incredible activism, even involving the Argentinian-born Pope Francis. With the issues discussed so far on this podcast, it is important to recognize what part we can all play in information spread and the collective action required for change. Gabriela is an expert for the region and the perfect example of a water warrior. We caught up with her to explore the complications in Argentina and the work being done towards water justice for all.
1: Thanks so much for joining us, Gabriela. We really appreciate your time to help explain some of the key facets of water justice in Latin America. We understand that you've been active in the campaign for water justice in Argentina. Could you start, please, by explaining some of your actions towards providing water justice for all?
5: Hi, Kat. Well, thank you for, for inviting me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here with you, with both of you. We have been working in the area of the right to water for over 12 years now, specifically in the right to water. And not only in Argentina, but uh, also trying to to work in all Latin America. So from there, we have done a lot of different things, many seminars, uh, diploma programs, courses, and also actions like uh, training uh, to water leaders in vulnerable neighborhoods. So it's a long journey that we have had.
1: Absolutely. Gabriela, you just mentioned a really important concept, and that is the right to water. In your view, like, what is the right to water?
5: The, the right to water is not just uh, the access to drinking water, and this is important. In fact, when we think about water justice, the importance of the concept is that it transcends the question of the distribution, and it includes those issues of, related with the cultural recognition of water, the need to wider political participation regarding water. So the right to water, when, when we speak about the right to water, it seems that we are only speaking about the access to drinking water. But it's not only that. When we speak about right to water, I can think about different examples. So contamination of water basins and the impossibility of institutions to control that pollution is another issue of water justice. For example, we have in Argentina, a basin that is very well-known that is the Matanza-Riachuelo Basin that is highly polluted and contaminated It's an area of 2,047 square kilometers. It's an area where we have 5,800,000 people. It represents about 50% of the population of the whole country, which is an extremely sad health problem because it affects people. And in fact, we know that people that has no access to services, to sewer services and to quality in water, they have an average of seven years less of, of life. So that is one aspect. But then the same basin has 12 natural protected areas With a high biological diversity. So it's not only a question of access to drinking water and pollution, it's a question of ecosystems that are uh, highly damaged as well. Mm. And, uh, you know, the government installed a, a water authority in charge of solving this issue. So back in 2006, there was set a Akumar, what is uh, an authority for this basin in charge of solving this problem of contamination. But still, it is very difficult for them to really control the discharges of industrial regions that still happen. We still have that about 10 tons of solid waste day are thrown into the basin so this is another aspect of water justice and of water rights
3: Mm. alluded to being an educator i understand that you're a lecturer what have you found to be the most effective point or condensed learning to to and and enlighten people to the importance of of water and, and water justice concepts
5: what we have found is we need to fill a gap of knowledge. I mean, for people to participate, we, our participation is key. But when we speak about participation, we need knowledge to participate because there are some rights that are logical in a way. I mean, we need air to live. We need water to live. So that is logical. And we think, OK, if we need that to live and it's a condition for a decent living, it should be a right But it's not that simple in practice, because otherwise we wouldn't have the kind of problems we have. So it's logical, but in practice it's not what happens. So then what we find is that in many cases we have to strengthen the knowledge about international legal frameworks. We need people to get more knowledge about what it means, the right to water, and what they need to fight for the right to
3: water. Mm. Have you found that in educating other people, and empowering them with this knowledge of legal frameworks and the political context that they exist in, that there has been a kind of discourse shift toward water at the political level. Has it come up more, changed some of the conversations that politicians have because the people want it more?
5: Oh, well, yeah. You know, there are different types of conversations. So, for example, when we go to seminars, we have organized different kinds of seminars, What we find is that our participants start with an idea of I have the right to water and we are fighting for water. But then when you start going through international legal frameworks, international laws, and then you analyze how that affects, for example, concession contracts in the water sector, and you find that the origin of some other problems is or was there, then they change. They change because they they get to know. Okay, so when I'm in a conversation with a politician or with a government authority or whoever, well, I can ground my position on this particular article of the law.
1: So it changes. That's why I say that knowledge is key. Mm. So, So in that case, what would you say the greatest challenges to water justice are in Argentina?
5: I think that Argentina is no different from other countries, again. In terms of the biggest challenges, is we have these challenges of reaching equality in access. That is one of our biggest challenges. In Argentina, we have an average of 80% of the population with access to water, and about 60% of the population with access to sewer services. But then when it comes to slums or extremely poor neighbourhoods, those figures go to 11% of the population in those areas with access to water and 2.5% of the population in slums and extremely poor neighborhoods with access to sewer services. So this is an issue of water justice. And I think that we have a problem of personal interest within the political arena that go over the common interest, that is a problem. And that makes that institutions become weak. Because when we analyze concession agreements along the history of different countries, what we find is there were wrong decisions at some points. Argentina has had one of the largest privatization schemes in Latin America in the 90s. And when we go back There, we find that there were a lot of wrong decisions. That is a problem with politics. I mean, you cannot give good news to everybody. So sometimes if you have a a company that is polluting, you have to make the decision to put a fine. You have to take action on that. Probably it won't be a popular decision at some point, but it, it will have good results in the long term. So that is something that we have to solve. Also, when you have small communities in rural areas or indigenous communities that are lost somewhere in the middle of the forest, they are sort of invisible for uh, many parts uh, for the rest of the world. So you have to care about them as well, but regardless of whether they bring you votes or not. So mm-hmm. that, is a, that is a problem. Not everybody involved in politics is like that, but it's, a, it's sort of a general problem with, because when it comes to concrete actions, you really need to consider the whole picture and not just those areas that will better impact you. If I think in terms of activism, it is good because activism makes uh, problems more visible. So uh, we need activism. We need to make invisible problems visible. We need to make invisible people more visible. So we need activism. But for that, again, we need a solid knowledge and we need to understand the system. It's not enough just to be convinced that we have the right, but we need to understand uh, the systems in which decisions are taken. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the general population to citizens like you and me, we need to learn that water brings life. So we need to be very conscious that what we do affects others, that if I live in a house with good access to water, but I use water with no limits because I don't care what water I use, It is very likely that I will be affecting others. And we are living in a common home. I mean, this planet is our common home. We need to make this home good for everyone, not just for someone. This is very important because when a region is affected, sooner or later, it comes to us. Mm. Yeah.
1: That's a really beautiful but very important message to understand our connections with other people and our connections to the world and then to use that to work together to make a difference. Gabriella Sacco, thank you so much for talking to the Water Justice podcast.
5: Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Tim and Kat. It was a pleasure to be with you.
1: Thank you. This concludes our venture into the dynamic water justice issues around Central and South America. And we hope that you found it as stimulating as you did informative. We look forward to sharing our discussions about the problems we face and the solutions for our future in the following episodes. For now, if you found any of these interviews of particular interest, you can find out more information about our guests' work in the episode description. Please consider subscribing and sharing this episode as it helps spread the ideas of water justice. We hope you'll stay tuned in to the Water Justice podcast. Bye for now.